Open your Bibles to Psalm 17. Today we're going to be considering Psalm 17. Psalm 17 is our passage today. TV shows that deal with the investigation and prosecution of crimes always seem to be wildly popular. Every one of them tries to outdo the other by focusing on the nature of the crimes, the personalities of the characters, or the unexpected plot twists that keep us guessing. We see them appeal to DNA analysis, body camera footage, enhanced GPS, radar technology, and more. And all of those things are intended to gather and interpret evidence accurately so that justice is served. In our passage today, David finds himself falsely accused and under attack in the court of God's judgment. And he is going to testify on his own behalf. Look with me at Psalm 17. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men, by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let's pray. Father, it's only by your Spirit that we can have understanding of your Word in such a way that conforms us to the image of Jesus. We ask you to work through your Spirit to open our spiritual ears and our spiritual eyes and our spiritual hearts to receive your Word today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So to best understand the thrust of Psalm 17, it's helpful to hold Psalm 17 up to a few other psalms. Like Psalm 22, Psalm 17 is also a prayer for deliverance. Both 17 and 22 evoke images of God as the righteous refuge for His people, and they depict Him as the warrior king who fights for and defends His people. Psalm 17 also resembles Psalm 7 that we considered some weeks ago, in presenting the case of someone who's been unjustly accused of wrongdoing. And it also resembles Psalm 16 that we looked at just last week, where David confesses the Lord as his true portion. 
So remember, as we've been going through the Psalms, it's, we've been saying repeatedly that it's good to read and study and pray through and meditate on individual Psalms for devotional purposes, but we also need to see the Psalms as a unified whole, a collection of poems providentially arranged. And lastly, in providing some context for Psalm 7, look at the superscription. It's very briefly and very simply a prayer of David. So we don't know what prompted David to write this. We simply have preserved for us a title indicating that David is praying for help. So it's generally applicable to God's people crying out for vindication and help from God. In the text today, I want to identify three aspects of this cry for deliverance that show God's people run to Him for refuge now since He is our portion forever. The first thing I want us to see is that a cry for refuge is a cry for deliverance. In the opening verses, David asked God to hear his case, and his reasoning is that his cause is just and his lips are free from deceit. As we'll see throughout the entire psalm, David maintains his innocence in this particular matter, and he contrasts himself with his enemies who persecute him violently. David is crying out for an audience with God who will listen and intervene. Now, the first few verses might make us feel a little uneasy. I think if we're being honest, we read the first part of the psalm and go, yeah, right, David, whose lips are free from deceit? Whose hearts are entirely right before God? Who refrains from sinning with their lips and their actions? We know your story, David, and we're not buying it. I think we'd probably be slow to say these things about ourselves, let alone agree with David or anyone else saying it about themselves. Remember how Job's friends responded to Job when he justified himself. And yet God called Job blameless. And for that matter, God called David a man after his own heart. It's easy to sit in the seat of Job's friends and forget that there is such thing as an innocent sufferer. So how do we understand how David begins this prayer? We need to remember that blamelessness and sinlessness are not always the same thing. It isn't that David is claiming to be sinless. He's saying there isn't anything in the law to presently hold over his head in this situation. We know that all of us have missed the mark of sinlessness. That's apparent from just a few psalms ago. We read in Psalm 14, 3, there is none who does good, not even one. David isn't claiming to be sinless. In fact, the Bible, sometimes in David's own words, is quite honest about his sin. The idea here is that David, wrongfully accused of something, being mistreated by his enemies, is innocent of the charges brought against him. One of the things that stands out in this psalm that I want you to notice is the frequent use of imagery in the form of parts of the body. He asks for God to give ear in verse 1. The word translated presence in verse 2 literally means face. He asks for God's eyes to behold the right. He says God has tried his heart and that he hasn't sinned with his lips. He carefully watches over the steps that his feet take. And we'll see those images continue in the second part of the psalm when David discusses his enemies. So coming to verses 3 through 5, David begins to specifically cite the examples of his own innocence. We're going to break the evidence he provides into his own defense down into three main parts, each of which builds on the other. So the first is exhibit A. His heart is pure. 
David says he has gone through the fiery trials of God, which is depicted here as a nightly visitation from God himself. And he's passed the test. There is nothing in his heart of which to convict him in this matter. This is really important because David goes straight to the place in himself where his true motivations and his true intentions lie. He isn't innocent merely because of the things he did or did not do. But down to the center of his being, the trials of God show him to be innocent here. So we're beginning to get the sense that if we were in a courtroom, David is the defendant on the witness stand, appealing to the judge's righteousness and knowledge of his own character to clear him of these false accusations. The next piece of evidence is Exhibit B. His words are pure. David intentionally and purposefully set out not to sin in the things that he said. It's striking that David doesn't simply say, I don't sin in what I say. It's helpful for us to hear David say, I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. Setting out with intention not to sin, whether it be in what we say or in any other way, is reflected of a heart inwardly changed by the work of God through the Holy Spirit. A mark of spiritual maturity is setting out with intention to live righteously and avoid sin. So David begins with an examination of his heart, and he builds on it to show that it's coming out of his mouth. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. One of the easiest ways that we can gauge the contents and motivations of our hearts is to take inventory of what we say, when we say it, how we say it, and why we say it. That brings us to exhibit C. His actions are pure. David's heart is right before God, and that has come out not only in the things that he says, but also in the way that he lives. And notice that David gives credit where credit is due. It's by the word of the Lord that David has avoided violent ways. It's by the word of the Lord that his feet have stayed on the Lord's path. There is not a better storehouse in all of the Bible with declarations about the goodness, the trustworthiness, the power, and the transforming nature of the Word of God than we have in the Psalms. It's the basis for the blessedness of the righteous person we saw all the way back in Psalm 1. And it's the Word of God we'll later see that is the lamp for our feet and the light for our path. So if that's the case... How could we ever imagine that it's possible to live in a way that pleases the Lord if we're not attentive to His Word? If man does not even live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, then how full of hubris must we be to think that we can try to walk the path of righteousness without it? If you are not feeding from the Word of God on a daily basis, you are at best spiritually malnourished. If you have no desire to even hear the Word, let alone receive and obey it. Jesus himself says, your house is built on sand. So David maintains and highlights his innocence in this case by showing us the evidence of his heart, his mouth, and his feet. Now before we look at the heart, feet, and mouths of David's enemies, look with me at verses 6 through 9. David's prayer begins to get more specific here and perhaps even a little more bold. First, notice the faith that's evident in his cry for help. He says, I call upon you, for you will answer me. David doesn't only believe that his case before God has merit. He's confident that because God is righteous and just, he will indeed answer him. And that moves him to prayer. It calls to mind the instructions that James gives for prayer in James 1, 
verses 6 through 8. It says, Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So asking in faith means faith that God is who he says he is, and he will always do what is right and good. Now, it's common for us to be confronted with the goodness and the necessity of prayer. The Bible says very plainly, pray continually. We know we ought to pray. But we need to go deeper than simply agreeing with the concept of prayer and ask, is prayer a delight for me? Do I long to cast my cares on God knowing that he cares for me? Do my prayers reflect a double-mindedness which the Bible says ought to give me no confidence in receiving the things I ask for? If we find David's boldness in prayer a little off-putting, remember that his appeal to God is ultimately rooted not in his righteousness, but ultimately in God's perfect righteousness. And it's God's righteous standards that David is using to evaluate himself here. So for us in Christ, the righteousness of Jesus moves us to pray with single-minded confidence that we are loved by God, we are heard by God, and we will be answered because his righteousness is imputed to us by faith. Look at what David says next. He asks that God would wondrously show steadfast love. And then he says, Keep me as the apple of your eye and hide me in the shadow of your wings. At first glance, we might just think that David is asking God to be gracious and kind, to watch out for him, to protect him. And those things are true. But I think there's something more going on here. First, Steadfast love in the Old Testament is a typical representation of God's faithful, covenantal love for His people Israel. And we don't have time to consider all of Deuteronomy chapter 32 today, but there are some striking similarities between the Song of Moses that's recorded there in Deuteronomy 32 and in Psalm 17. Look with me at Deuteronomy 32 verses 10 to 11 where Moses recounts God's goodness to Israel. It says, He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. God's love and tender care for Israel is in view there. And now David is asking for that same love, that same mercy, and that same faithfulness to come to his aid. Psalm 17, 1-9 is a bold and confident cry for help from someone who knows the Lord, who loves the Lord, and who has examined their own heart and actions in light of God's Word. And now they're pleading with God to be God, to be just, to be righteous, to powerfully protect them, to wondrously show steadfast love. So a cry for refuge is a cry for deliverance. But deliverance from who? That moves us to the second point. A cry for refuge is a cry for justice. Here, David is going to show us that the enemies have hearts, mouths, and feet, but those are in direct opposition to his. So he pleads with God to act justly in dealing with them. We looked at exhibits A, B, and C in defense of David. 
Now, let's look at exhibits D, E, and F that David uses to describe his adversaries. Exhibit D, their hearts are closed. The idea here is that they are calloused, selfish, and without regard for what is right. Whereas David's heart was open to the Lord and passed his tests, his heart was pure, his adversaries' hearts are closed. We might use the phrase hard-hearted to describe his enemies. And sin does that to the heart of a person, so much so that Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Sin warps us to the core. So then think about the wonderful promise there is for believers in a passage like Philippians 4, 7, which tells us as we come to God in prayer that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The only hope that anyone has of being free from a heart that's hardened by sin, that's opposed to God, is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit over time. God promises to grant us hearts that are at peace, and we experience more and more of this through prayer. David's enemies have closed hearts, and there is a warning here for anyone not keeping a watch on their own. Exhibit E, their words are arrogant. So they're puffed up, they're prideful, and that's a natural result of being hard-hearted. We saw David's lips were free of deceit. David was set on not transgressing. He purposed not to transgress with his words, while his enemies are boastfully running off at the mouth. Exhibit F continues the comparison. Their actions are violent. Whereas David avoided the ways of the violent, his enemies have now surrounded him like prowling lions, ready for the kill. We need to get a sense here of David's desperation. This isn't just some academic exercise demonstrating his innocence and his enemy's guilt. He is surrounded by evil adversaries out for blood. The darkness of his trial has yet to give way to mourning, and David is desperate for help. In every way, David's enemies are in direct contrast to him. And more importantly, these are God's enemies. Consider Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is perfectly fitting for David's enemies. Now we know wickedness will surely set people against each other in this life, but no more so than against God himself. Because these people have set themselves against God, David has further confidence to ask God to intervene. And he asks him to do so like a divine warrior. He says, arise, confront, and subdue them. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. David isn't resorting to evil speech or violence in return. He knows that only God can justly adjudicate this. So, he leaves it to God to provide righteous deliverance. There's a lesson here for us when we're wronged. God help us to have the patience and self-control to wait on him and not to take the sword of his justice from his hand and try to wield it ourselves. Now take a look with me at verse 14. 
The first part of that verse describes these people as men of the world whose portion is in this life. Wicked people only have hope in this life. They amass all they can get, and they're ignorant of the fact that all good things they enjoy are actually from the hand of a kind and gracious God. They are satisfied with their children and their abundance. They have all the marks of health and prosperity. Their treasure is in earthly things. But we need to recognize that prosperity is risky. God knows how easy it is for us to be satisfied with things other than Him, especially when we have so much. A lot of times we take shots at the prosperity gospel, and rightfully so because it isn't the gospel. But speaking for myself, it's much more easy for me to take shots at Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland, and I'm much less inclined to look at the mirror of my own heart and my own proclivities to love and treasure the things of this world. The prosperity gospel has such widespread appeal because it entices us with the things that our sinful hearts are naturally drawn to. There is only one real and lasting solution to the kind of idolatry produced by treasuring worldly things. And it brings us to our last point. We've already seen that a cry for refuge is a cry for deliverance and a cry for justice. Lastly, a cry for refuge is a cry for God's presence. Verse 15 brings the psalm to a close as David settles on where his hope truly lies. He says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. John in Revelation 22.4 calls this passage to mind when it depicts eternal life, saying that the servants of the Lord will see his face. Throughout the Bible and especially in the Psalms, the face of God is associated with his presence, with his blessing, and with his favor. The Bible says the Lord spoke to Moses face to face. It was the light of God's face shining on his people that constituted the blessing that Aaron was to pronounce on Israel. So David's hope is in the close, uninterrupted fellowship with God that John is looking forward to in Revelation when he says the servants of the Lord will see his face. When you think about the Christian life in general and, and your life in particular, do you desire that kind of intimate closeness with the Lord? The answer to David's prayer to hear him, to help him, to vindicate him, to subdue his enemies is all wrapped up in beholding God's face. When he sees God's face, he'll be delivered. When he sees God's face, his enemies will be fully and finally dealt with. But notice that it happens in righteousness. Remember back in Psalm 15 a couple weeks ago, we saw the righteous requirements for living in the presence of God. David is bringing those things back to mind here and telling us how he expects to behold God's face. Righteousness is required. And we're not talking about the innocence we might claim in a particular situation anymore. We're talking about the very righteousness of God. It's the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, according to Hebrews 12, 14. It's the righteousness that Jesus says must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. If we are to enter the kingdom... If I am to be with God, if I am to behold His face, then He must make me as He is. And this is where the whole of this psalm, and actually the whole story of the Bible is building. How is it that any of us, tainted by sin, can dwell with the holy, perfect, 
just and wonderful creator of all things in such a way that beholding his face is actually a delight. How can we be like God? You realize in the Bible, it's common when people experience something of God's presence, they expect to be crushed under the weight of his holiness because they sense just how unlike God they are, just how unholy they are. So how can any of us be so bold as to think we could stand for a moment in the light of God's face? Jesus. Jesus alone. Jesus is the ultimate innocent sufferer who was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. Jesus is the true Israel, the true Son of God, whose righteousness merits all of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus withstood the arrogant and violent enemies who sought his life. When he was reviled, he blessed. When he was persecuted, he endured. When he was slandered, he entreated. In the garden, he raised the cup of God's wrath to his lips. And on the cross, he drank it all. The reason that you and I don't have to shrink in terror before the holiness and majesty of God is because Jesus took the full measure of his wrath against our sins. Jesus' heart was and is completely free of any sin or unrighteousness. When Jesus was mocked and scorned, he didn't open his mouth with reviling, but he asked God to forgive them. His hands and his feet bear the marks of the nails used to hang him on the cross. We need the heart, the mouth, and the feet of Jesus to save us. Consider a passage like Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, which says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For us in Jesus, it's his own righteousness that moves us to press into God with the confident assurance that we will receive mercy and grace to help us. Jesus became as we are in order to make us like he is. So beholding the face of God now brings joy rather than terror precisely because the Father hid his face from Jesus when he poured out his wrath on him instead of us. If we were to be measured in the scales of God's justice, we'd be found wanting. The body of evidence stacked up against us is too much to overcome. But we can look on the face of Jesus and believe, receive his righteousness, and live. So what change does that make in a person? David says it at the very end of Psalm 17. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. People who hunger and thirst for possessions may be satisfied with what can be gained in this life, but it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness who are the ones who will be eternally satisfied because they receive from God Himself, they receive God Himself as their reward. And as we saw last week, because God is our portion, the lines for us have truly fallen in pleasant places. If you are in Christ, the kingdom is yours. You will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You will be satisfied. You will receive mercy. And you will see God. David says that this is going to happen when he awakes. The gloomy night of trial will give way to dawn, where the light of the face of God shines on him. And notice what it provides. Satisfaction. Nothing this world has to offer can satisfy your soul. But God himself satisfies his people by giving us Jesus. 
When we were dead in our sins, He Himself came in the flesh to our rescue. He died to pay for our sins. His resurrected body is the evidence that our debt has been paid and that there is forgiveness and eternal life available in Him. But this gift is only for those who by God's grace repent of sin and trust in Jesus. So today, are you trusting in Jesus alone to save you? One day, as long as the Lord tarries, you and I will fall asleep in death. But the great hope of the Christian life is that because of Jesus' resurrection, we too will be raised. That is what David is looking forward to here. We will awake and behold the face of God, and we will be satisfied with His likeness. So a cry for refuge is a cry for deliverance, a cry for justice, and a cry for God's presence. So if that's true... What do we do now? I want to ask four questions to help us think through this as we close. The first question is, how are my prayers? If what it looks like to be a Christian is to have a Jesus-centered and spirit-driven delight in God that produces a life that glorifies Him, that must be reflected in prayer. The trials of life must constantly drive us back to God, where in Jesus we can confidently ask for help, ask for protection, and grow in our affections for the Lord. The second question is, how is my heart? We've got to take a long, hard look in the mirror over the condition of our hearts, what motivates us, what we love, what we delight in, and what we desire. We can gauge that in the same way that David did, by checking our words and checking our actions against the measuring stick of God's righteous standards in His Word. A life of righteousness is not produced without hiding the Word of God in your heart. But remember, as Pastor Michael reminded us last week out of Psalm 16, a transformed life is not a precondition for faith, but a result of faith. So then we should also ask ourselves the third question. What is my hope? There is this conceptualization of the Christian life where we live how we want and we go to heaven when we die and we're reunited with the loved ones we've lost just by paying lip service to God. And it has little, if anything, to do with Jesus. And it's basically the same as saying, the life I have now would just be perfect if it lasted forever. Is that your hope? Or is your hope set on beholding the face of God? The only people who will be satisfied by God then are the ones who are resting in Jesus now. When we cry for refuge, blamelessness under the law is not enough. We need the blamelessness of another. It must be on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus to receive deliverance, for justice to be done, and for His presence to be had. And ultimately, what we're doing is crying out like John in Revelation, Come, Lord Jesus. It's a longing for Him to return, to set things right, and to be with us forever. The last question to ask is, what satisfies me? Is it the abundance of my possessions? Is it the health and prosperity of my family? Good gifts from God become idols when we look to them rather than to the giver to satisfy us. As we close, I want to put it to you this way. John Piper asks this question. If you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, 
Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? If you gathered the whole body of evidence of your life, your heart, your words, your actions, what would they say to that question? Does Jesus satisfy you? Let's pray. Father, we know that in this world we have trouble. There are dangers within and without. But we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you have overcome the world. And so we come to you for refuge. We come to you for justice. We come to you most of all for you to live in your presence where there is everlasting joy. We're thankful for your word and we ask that you would continue to use it to conform us into your image through your word, by your spirit. We pray that you would move in us in such a way that our joy and our satisfaction in you would only increase. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.